Welcome to this week's Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Another week, another huge batch of stories for us to get through as we try and pilot a free market and liberal course through the world's events. Is it finally time to unilaterally undo the Northern Ireland Protocol and to have a properly united kingdom post-Brexit? What can be done to halt or reverse the cost of living crisis? Prices rising at their fastest for four decades. Or is the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, right when he claims that policymakers are helpless in the face of inflation? And what about free speech? What's the state of that in the United Kingdom at the moment? Have we got the balance right? Or are we sleepwalking into some sort of cancel culture? Uh, sometimes those who seem to argue for free speech for them seem a little less willing to give it to others. Might they end up with egg on their face, just like Margaret Thatcher's statue in Leicester? All of that's coming up on this week's Live with Littlewood. <laughs> Kapow, welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to this week's Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, Director General here at the Institute of Economic Affairs. We've got another stellar lineup of guests to pilot our way through some of the big issues of the week. Coming up later in the show, Lucy Harris, former Conservative MEP, now a political consultant. I'll be asking her views on how we tackle the inflation and cost of living crisis. I'm going to be joined by Darren McCaffrey, GB News political editor and presenter, about possible solutions to inflation. And from the home team, our very own head of Regulatory Affairs, Victoria Hewson will be here to discuss the Northern Ireland Protocol and whether the time has come for the UK to act independently and unilaterally to solve the problem before us. But first up, a very warm welcome back to the Live Littlewood Show to Baroness Claire Fox, Founder and Director of the Academy of Ideas. Claire. <laughs> Great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for coming in. Now, uh, we're going to kick off on what we're calling freedom of expression. God, I don't know who writes these headlines. Absolutely <laughs> appalling. Um, look, this is just the latest rather trivial incident, I guess. The University of Leicester uh, had a statue of Margaret Thatcher. It had only been up for a short while before some chap started throwing eggs in it. I gather he's, he's the deputy director of the Arts Centre at the University of Leicester. I mean, no huge big deal, but... What does it tell us about the state of public debate and freedom of expression in the UK, Claire? Something that's a big, big concern of yours. Well, it lacks a certain uh, imagination. <laughs> uh, let's put it that way. Um, you could tell he's a bit older, that it was kind of eggs. And, Should be uh, a milkshake, if you're, isn't yeah, that? That's exactly. all the rage for the youngsters. Um, I, look, I spent most of my youth fighting against, arguing against Thatcher and Thatcherism and was very firmly on the side of the miners, we'll all be delighted to know. But I think it's a sign of the times that the great act of political rebellion is throwing eggs at a statue. At a statue. Yeah, that's pretty... Do you know pretty what I mean? Bad. You do think it's a bit lame. 
and, and of course it's a bit lame as well because you know if you're really going to go for the statues you now have to drag them down and drag them along and throw them in rivers to be making any kind of an impact as we saw in Britain. Yeah, egg throwing's a bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of like sad. Yes. Yeah. But but yeah, it, on on the free speech point, I think it is there's a genuine problem that this is the way that people react to ideas or or individuals whose ideas you disagree with is to is to kind of like be angry and outraged and to do things like that. And so although, as you say, this is a trivial example, I think that the fact that there's an atmosphere in academia that would mean that were you to be the kind of 18 or 19 year old, who, by the way, I think might be a bit sad, to, who says, Thatcherism is something I'd like to explore. Well, you're not going to do that at the University of Leicester if your you know, shooter is going around throwing eggs at the statue, right? That's why it's a problem. And, I mean, is this... Uh, I mean, I'm not actually quite sure where the law stands here. It's presumably illegal to throw eggs at a stat. It's criminal damage, or potentially, isn't it? I don't know. But the, it, it, it seems to me it speaks to a paucity in public discourse. Has that got worse, or am I just getting older and more whingy and gammony with each passing year? Or back in the day, did we not actually have proper debates about Thatcherism and the miners? Or was is it always just been this rather trivial performative art, well, basically? You might, well, you might well be getting older and more gammony. <laughs> but I probably am, Two yeah, things yeah. can exist but, at once. But, and I can't uh, be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. Um, I, I actually think that there's an intolerance about other people's ideas that expresses them itself in a way that describes people who you disagree with as evil, who shouldn't exist, who should have eggs thrown at them, who should be torn down from the public uh, arena. Um, I think it says something about our war on the past. And I do think these are contemporary problems. I don't think they always existed. I think things have degenerated. And I think that the left that I'm from but the identitarian left, as is presently emerged, has led the way in terms of trying to shut down any oppositional ideas at all. And I think the fact that you can just say, well, it was Thatcher, so what do you care, right? Misunderstands that this was a highly influential prime minister who, whether you like her or not, or what her legacy was, has a huge influence on British politics. And you should be able to, if you're disagreeing with her, demonstrably, intellectually demolish that, not throw eggs at it. And is this, I mean, OK, we're, we're, we're probably over-picking on this one chap in this one instant, but is this the nature of political discourse now? I mean, I was kind of, when Extinction Rebellion were all over the place, it seemed to me to be more of a kind of jolly day out and a festival. You can do a bit of poetry reading and, you know, dance a jig and, um, you know, knit your own quiche or whatever else they would uh, and, and But there wasn't much actual debate or discussion about climate, environment policy. It was all just a sort of, you know, it was kind of, you know, a festival. The nature of politics has changed to become much more performative. So that's kind of what you're saying. But it's also the case that, for example, I have defended um, the right to protest against the uh, increasing incursions on that right by the uh, Conservative government, which, by the way, I think is equally performative because a lot of the laws they're bringing in are as much about saying in a kind of virtue signalling way, we're going to clamp down on protest. You do think you've got huge swathes of public order legislation that you can use, but the police aren't using it, right? And 
whether that's a politicised police force or a, 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 a sanitised police force, whatever it is, that's the problem, not just bringing in more laws, more mm -hmm. rules, because that's actually going to have an impact on all of us. When you talk about Extinction Rebellion, it's also a case that these days, going on those demonstrations, going on a demonstration was, on the one hand, making a loud noise so that you could have your views heard, but it was about a way of attempting to win over your fellow citizens to an idea. You, you were demonstrating your displeasure, but you were, there was always, I mean, like people like me, selling newspapers or leafleting, but you'd be saying to the public, you know, this is why you should join our side and why you shouldn't just be walking along the pavements. Whereas, indeed, these demonstrations that are so performative basically say the public are rubbish. They don't get it. So we're going to ruin their lives as much as possible and make it impossible for them to get to work to do yeah, anything. Yeah. So it's anti-democratic. And then the police stand there kind of going, we don't know what to do. What do we do? But why we why do the police do. not know what to do? I mean, the, the, once a line's been crossed, and I don't know, you've glued yourself to the road or something. I mean, it's now not a matter of protest, is it? You're now blocking the public yeah. highway and you should be but, removed. But most of these protests break laws that presently exist. The police also don't want to be unpopular. So there's this idea that, you know, well, we can't be seen to be too heavy-handed because we might get the wrong kind of headlines. So they're also being performative. We also, I think there is some truth, sadly, in the idea that in some instances the police actually are sympathetic to the demonstrators. And I do think we saw that particularly around... Well, that's not a problem, is it? Well, it is if they if their if their sympathies. Are, I mean, individually, they can think what they want. I mean, that's not the point. The point I'm making is is that they sort of think. Well, you know, I think it was terrible what happened to George Floyd, and maybe these Black Lives Matters protests have a point. And then on other demonstrations, you see them going in really hard, and you think, oh. You didn't like them ones. Mm. Now, you're not meant to think like that because you're meant to have consistent policing that, if you want, is the strong arm of the state when it's necessary. And I don't think that any of us can feel entirely sure that the police... It's a bit like impartiality in the BBC. You know, you can say you're impartial as much as you want, but when you really know what they really think, and so many of the, the uh, police officers are now going on courses in, you know, gender identity and how to be diverse and all the rest of it, you know that they've kind of bought into a lot of this stuff as a way of softening the way they're seen by the public, but as a consequence of which, they are neither doing their jobs nor seem to be fair. And in, in terms of public debate, I mean, you, you, you do a fantastic job at the Academy of Ideas, you know, run this, uh, the Institute of Ideas Festival every year, and it, this is genuinely people who disagree. It's a wide variety of different voices, left, right, libertarian, socialist, green, anti-green, a whole lot. But this is a dying phenomenon, isn't it, in the United Kingdom? I mean, the, really what it's all about now is, you know, shouting at people on Instagram and Twitter. And um, if you all gluing yourself to a pavement, I'm, I'm really worried about the state of public discourse. And I thought, I mean, obviously, Lively Littlewood here on the YouTube channel, highly civilised, intelligent conversation. <laughs> but uh, a rarity, I, 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 I'm sort of feeling, in the wider, which is all just sort of screaming and shouting and hurling abuse at each other. How have we got to this? You would have the access to sort of social media should have encouraged public debate, not just lead to a slanging match. People have actually lost confidence that they know how to win the arguments very often. The only thing they've got is the slogan or the meme. And, you know, if you talk particularly to younger people, you'll find that they they can repeat the mantra, but they can't go much beyond it. And by the way, I think this is true on the left and the right, and on all, you know, on all sides, as it were. I mean, I, I, even people who will argue in defence of free speech often simply 
do use it in, I know it's disparaging, but in that kind of culture warsy way, you know, just going, I'm free speech, <laughs> I hate the woke. And then when you actually explore it a bit, they can't get much further than that. You know, I, I'm opposed to Extinction Rebellion. They are, you know, green fascists. Or something. And then you kind of go, all right, let's talk about it. And then they can't go further. In other words, depth, any kind of analysis that goes beyond that sort of tick box way of expressing which side you're on, it seems to me is being lost. Mm -hmm. And that's because you can lose the habit, the, the, the art of debate. And one of the things that happened was is that we demonised people we disagree with. That's, that's where, the, to go back to our Thatcher example, where you demonise them in such a way that, that, that you delegitimise them. So what you say is, if everybody's a fascist, right? if everybody's an alt-right white supremacist, I mean, who wants to talk to an alt-right white supremacist? I don't, but if you describe you know, huge swathes of public opinion as alt-right or as fascist, then you don't have to bother with them, right? And therefore you never engage mm -hmm. with people that you disagree with. And I think that you literally forget how to debate. Right. Well, let's have a debate then. You, you're from the left of the spectrum. Our next guest is from the centre-right of the spectrum. Please give a very warm welcome to former Conservative MEP and political consultant Lucy Harris. Lucy, hi. <laughs> Hi, thanks for joining us, Lisa. So, what's your take on it? Uh, 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 you know, you're, you're a little bit younger than Claire and I. Are we just, just grumpy oldsters, you know? <laughs> uh, or is public debate and discourse just in, a, in yeah. a you know really shallow position at the moment? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we've lost this ability to have goodwill to our opponents and see that you know we may disagree um, in terms of how we get there, but at the end of the day, we always have this concept of wanting to um, you know strive to the same goal. Um, you know, we want um, ordinary people to have better livelihoods. We want them to have a better, a better standard of living or a better quality of life. But it's when it comes to the detail and negotiating how you get there is where the confusion and arguments and the slagging off often happens. And I think that's a real shame because at the end of the day, and I've said that three times now, um, we are at the end of the day, so uh, <laughs> it's a good way to um, uh, initiate my conversation, but um, we need to have those conversations to have that ability to find a solution that is applicable to as many people as possible. Um, and you can only do that through a debate that is, you know, a negotiated one with goodwill at, at the head of it. But th this is a real rarity, isn't it? I mean, you know, both of you are veterans of the, of the Brexit campaign, and uh, you know, I voted for Leave, but it, it struck me that there were some good arguments and some bad arguments on both sides. I, I didn't believe that you had to be crazy or mad in order to vote Remain. I could yeah. see the case uh, uh, for it and I balanced it up. But has politics now just become, Claire, just completely d divisive? You're over on one side or the other. You're either, you know, Tory or Labour, Brexit or Remain, Trump or anti-Trump, and there isn't a sort of zone of possible agreement in the middle where people can sort of say, well, you know, I agree with Claire Fox about halfway. Maybe she goes a bit far on this or not far enough on that. No, it's completely, it's become binary, hasn't it? It's become binary and I can't stand it. I mean, I can't stand it on, as it were, our side any more than anything else. But just to go back to the Brexit issue, I think that, you know, I wasn't a hardcore uh, Eurosceptic. I was Eurosceptic for years, but I, I hadn't campaigned for a referendum. Well, what happened was, 
in the build-up to the referendum and then, of course, afterwards, when I realised that anyone who was just decided to vote leave in a, in a legitimately called referendum was demonised as Neanderthal, xenophobic knuckle-draggers, yeah. you know, you, you immediately... I started saying, oh, what are you talking about? And then immediately you get cast into that. And so I think... I can understand that people get defensive because if you get called those names, yeah. I don't mean just me, I mean people then start lashing out. But the difficulty we then have is that we are never going to solve anything if we don't have robust, lively argument about the future and what yeah. we do about it, on the same side even, mm -hmm. without going, there's a line that you've crossed. I mean, you, you will know, sorry, just very quickly. Because I don't agree with everything everyone says, and we've seen this with the Ukraine war, people will say, oh, has she turned into a shill now? She's a controlled opposition. These are people who were Brexiteers with me. And you think, oh, for God's sake, we are allowed to disagree. And, yeah. uh, Lucy, do you think on that that we're now doing a lot more of playing the man or the woman rather than the ball? Yeah, I mean, I would say at the IEA, the, the, the biggest complaint that we get from our... Who funds you? As yeah. if. It always goes down uh, to that, right, As it? if, you know, I'm at heart, you know, opposed free market liberalism. I'm only saying this yeah. because, you know, that, that's what my yeah, well, paymasters want. But, the, but the, it's that, again, Claire, going back to your point, was about delegitimisation. We don't really want to engage in the IA's, you know, arguments yeah. or what Littlewood thinks. And we just want to say he's probably up to no good. I mean, and it also sort of goes to the point that people can't have their own opinions. They all move in a group. You know, this is the IA being paid for by some shady dodo. Um, to say an explicit and a direct thing. That's not the case. You know, lots of people have, I'm sure, very different opinions in the IA, but of course, you know, there are also situations where people with lots of money have very different opinions and do want to affect the world. And um, back, back to the uh, original point that we mentioned about um, that concept around having, um, you know, having that um, difficulty when it comes to the diet and the, the, the the sort of the sort of di di diversity. Yeah, diversity and that sort of um, unjust um, representation of ordinary people. Um, I think it does go down to big changes in society and how we deal with those. And people do get emotional when it comes to um, having to justify as what they see as their identity, their their, their ability to um, demonstrate themselves with the world that they live in. Um, for example, you know, as a Brexiteer, it was really difficult back in the day to say in a liberal world, I, I used to work in publishing very, very much uh, back in the day, um, it was very difficult to say that you were somebody who voted for Brexit without instantly being associated with that press and media narrative that you were somehow nefarious in your sort of reasons for doing so. And I think that's where it goes wrong. The reasons for doing so are often painted as nefarious when really they're actually they're actually a positive thing that you've thought about, and that often goes undermined. And what do you think, Lucy, about you know new powers we need to crack down on things? I mean, again, yeah. isn't aren't the political elite as guilty of performative art as the as the demonstrators? <laughs> well, I mean, just get on and sort it out. Why do I, I mean we've got the right rules in place to prevent people from blocking the streets or or you know throwing yeah, paint no. over people? These are all illegal anyway. It's just yeah. why do we need new legislation? Yeah, I think it's. 
obviously to show that we're doing something about it. Well, why don't you show you're doing something about it by doing something about well, it? Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think back to Claire's point, absolutely, you have to have, um, you know, you don't want to be liked as the police. The police are there to enforce law. Um, and they could have already done a lot in lots of those Extinction Rebellion situations. Um, but I'm more worried about when it comes to free speech is like the online harms bill, for example, where we're telling uh, companies, small companies, big and large, if you have um, you know, the ability to enable conversation, you're then going to have to police private conversations. And that's where I'm worried. I'm worried how that's going to stunt innovation, how that's going to stunt people's ability to debate ideas like Claire um, knows is so important to further those negotiations in society to make sure that we have the right outcome for people. Claire, I've got a kind of a rough theory that there's just a permanent race between the kind of entrepreneurs and individuals on the one hand and regulators on the other and so you know that the all these debates will happen on Twitter and then the, the regulators will try to regulate in the way do you think in practical terms there these sort of online uh, you know safety moves and this policing of the internet can it really happen in the United Kingdom or again is this just the governing authorities showing that they're clamping down on, you know, terrorism or extreme thoughts of it. It won't really stick because the technology just doesn't really work like that. Well, I, I think the technology uh, could well thwart their plans in a practical sense. I think that's true. But I do think that the, you know, if they're using legislation to send messages, it's which messages? And I think that if you live in a society where safetyism is the main message you want to put out, we've had two years of that with the lockdown measures but prior to that we've had the whole precautionary principle as a dominant mm -hmm. overarching mm -hmm. way that we understand the world now this is the online safety bill which boasts that it's going to be the safest place in the world to be online safety is all and they're threatening the technology companies that if they do not remove things now that uh, th then they will be fine and so on now, you, you Col know, colossal fines as colossal well fines. Yeah, we're not I mean, talking about well, and also they're people. actually talking about put people in prison yeah, yeah. right so what that leads to is risk aversion. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have a situation whereby you've got to decide whether to let something be said online or not. You're going to go, well, maybe this is going to upset someone, so I better be careful. This legal but harmful notion is very dangerous. And I think that Lucy's absolutely right that what you get to a situation is that a whole swathes of legislation become stifling. And that's where you then say, well, I mean, it might not directly influence innovation but how can you have a culture in which you say let's innovate think the unthinkable be daring take risks let's push the barriers you but know. make sure you don't offend anyone right but, but At all, be careful ever. in case it's legal but harmful yeah yeah and you might get or and you, you think about socializing the young into those messages then it means that you've basically got a cautious atmosphere and that's why on university campuses it's no coincidence that the anti-free speech uh, uh, form that it takes is safe spaces. Yeah, yeah, now the yeah. government says it wants to clamp down on the safe space generation snowflake on university but it acts like generation safe space when it comes to legislation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, do you understand what legal but harmful might mean? Well, exactly. Very, I, mean, I mean how are you going to talk about open this? to interpretation? I right? know. Are they going to produce a massive dictionary of what yeah, can and yeah. cannot be said and I think I think if I remember correctly in the European Union Claire you we, went through a very similar situation with those guys um, you were, were we going to publish a book of things that could and could not be said 
um, in the European Parliament and then do all the different translations for it. So yeah. it's going to be a mammoth. What they actually said, what, I can't even remember what the what word was. But what happened was somebody used a word, which was a completely innocuous word, and the chair in front of everyone said, that word is not allowed here. It is is not allowed. We have a list. And um, we queried, well, what, how do you know? And they said, there is a book in which you can see the words. Yes. So I then made a quick speech saying, can we have the book, please? Right, we right. need to know which words. Um, and of course, it's a joke, and you associate that with yeah. the kind of bureaucratic nonsenses that goes on in the European Parliament. Well, I mean, you must we be left the European Parliament, yeah. and then I come back and find, you know, domesticate the law, yeah. well, and instead fair, we get the online, the online safety. Well, the online harm bill actually does reflect a lot of the stuff and a lot of the, the legal um, connotations of the, the bill that's going well the bill going through um, the EU Parliament right now. Um, so it's a massive reflection of what they're doing. So yep. we're in it together, um, unfortunately, when it comes to that um, legislation. Um, but what I'm, I, I always thought was um, quite interesting was who decides what is right to say and what is wrong to say. And in that case, the, you know, our EU overlords were definitely um, deciding that situation. But what about now? Who is deciding? And that's what worries me. Where are the people and who are the people trying to tell us what we can and cannot say and how is it decided? Why is it on media, you know, you're not allowed to say certain lines of thought, sure. you know, who is... But yeah, the two of you must be missing the European Parliament terribly. I saw, oh, I, I, I saw their inter the, the interpretive dance routine in the European Parliament last week. Great, okay. interesting. you know, that, that's how we're, we're not I going mean, to express I mean, ourselves in Parliament through the medium of mime, no, right? Yeah. Not a day goes back, but I thought it was really funny because even the kind of most pro-Europhile MEPs looked mortified. But I wanted to just quickly say something about misinformation because we've a lot of concentration on the legal but harmful. But misinformation is one of the real kind of dodgy ones in this online safety bill, I think, because you 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 know we're all familiar with, and I can't cope with the pr proliferation of conspiracy theory nonsense that you can all see online. We're all fed up of it, whether it's about Ukraine and Russia or it's about, you know, the, 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 um, the vaccines or whatever it is, right? It drives me mad. But I, the best way to deal with that is to shine the light yeah, of, yeah. Uh, on it. Otherwise, I mean, who is going to decide on what is misinformation? I mean, I made a point in the Lords the other day and said, well, will passages from the Bible count? I mean, you can't get more misinformed when it comes to truth than bits of the Bible. I mean, transubstantiation, I'm a Catholic. I mean, is that misinformation or does that count? No, but I wanna, the reason I'm saying it is because who gets to decide yep. what is misinforming right. or not? Well, Claire and Lucy, you've helped us crack the problem of freedom of speech in just 25 minutes, <laughs> so it. thanks for that. We're going to move on to some even harder problems now. Uh, if you're watching the show and enjoying it, please hit the like, thumbs up button. Also, if you're not yet a subscriber, please hit that subscribe banner and the notification bell down below. That way you'll be kept abreast of all IA uh, upcoming content. But we've solved freedom of speech to help us solve another thorny problem, uh, the Northern Ireland protest. Carl, please give a very warm welcome to the IA's very own Head of Regulatory Affairs, Victoria Hewson. Hey Victoria, thanks for joining us. Uh, so that's that's good. We, we've solved uh, freedom of expression in 25 minutes. Now we're going to have 15 <laughs> minutes or so to uh, put to bed the Northern Ireland problem. Victoria, you uh, wrote a research paper for us uh, this week on the Northern Ireland protocol. We'll make sure that we link to that in the in the show notes below. You're saying that we've 
got to resolve this now really through, or at least it would be justified for the UK to take unilateral action to solve the problem that's occurring in Northern Ireland. Just explain to our viewers, what is the problem that's occurring? Well, the, the, the problem is that in order to extricate ourselves from the EU in the face of not just the obduracy from the European Commission and the European Union itself, but also all of the resistance in our own national parliament where we our negotiators have been backed into a corner, uh, we ended up signing up to a rather onerous um, arrangement, including the Northern Ireland Protocol, whereby uh, we essentially had to institute a full international trade border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, two parts of the same country. Northern Ireland relies on Great Britain for basically all of the goods in its, in, in its market, consumer goods, food, manufacturing, supply chains. And so the impact of that has been quite uh, strikingly bad, negative, for manufacturers in Northern Ireland who potentially are having to pay tariffs on goods that they are bringing just across the Irish Sea from Great Britain. Consumer goods, uh, you have to get veterinary certificates for goods. Technically speaking, uh, sausages and chilled meats would just be outright banned. We haven't implemented that bit yet, much to the chagrin of the European mm -hmm. Commission. And the cost, one economist at the University of Ulster has put it at £850 million a year, which is around about 2% of the entire GDP of Northern Ireland, which is already one of the poorest parts of the United Kingdom. British taxpayers are paying around 500 million pounds so far just to implement the infrastructure mm -hmm. and the support services to try and make this work. So it's it's a pretty dire situation and that's before we even got onto the constitutional question sure. which has driven the unionist parties out of the devolved government in Northern Ireland which means of course that what the protocol has delivered in the exact opposite of its stated intentions is bringing the institutions of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement to a standstill. Claire, I know you've got to leave us uh, shortly, but I'm sure you can solve in a few sentences the, the Irish problem, can't you? you? But you've previously been very sympathetic, I think, to a united Ireland. When we got Brexit over the line, it sort of seemed that we sort of thought, oh, well, there is this sort of Northern Ireland problem. We'll, we'll, we'll sort that out later on. And we've now got to that part of the road. What is the solution here? Well, first of all, um, it's a brilliant summation of where we are. Um, I think all of us who kind of went along with the, 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 the Brexit deal, although I was a, a, a no-dealer, uh, as it were, at that time, knew that there were some real problems with it, and whether that was fisheries, but, mm -hmm. but in this instance, we knew there was a constitutional problem. But it was actually that or no Brexit at all, because it was such a ferocious fight back. That's why we did it. Yeah, That's exactly. why we accepted it. Anyway, the, we are where we are. In terms of the, the situation, as I understand, as I explain it, I um, still support United Ireland, but that's got nothing to do, that's, who cares what I think about that, right? The United Kingdom, as the United Kingdom, voted to leave the European Union. The whole of the United Kingdom. And you cannot be in a situation where a bit of the United Kingdom, it's, yeah. as it's it still is... Still in the EU, really. It's in the EU. Yeah. I mean, it's not just 
a little in effect. I mean, yeah. it really will be in the EU. Yeah. It will be answerable to the European Court of Justice. Its laws will be made outside of itself. It is not, therefore, part of the United Kingdom. Now, for me, it's if you are going to, for example, in the future, if there was a demand for a border poll, if the people of Ireland made a decision, blah, 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 that's not to be used in any way to undermine the democratic mandate of the 2016 uh, referendum. And that's the way I see it, right? And I, I find it utterly galling that people try and say that the protocol is what you need in order to defend the Good Friday Agreement. It's the very opposite. The protocol is actually a barrier to allowing a pot, the United Kingdom to remain united. So, you know, what happens in the future in Ireland is a whole separate story. Yep. But however, it's, it's inevitably the case that because Sinn Féin have done reasonably well and are likely to get elected in, sorry, in Southern Ireland, people are just using this almost as a threat. And what we end up doing is abandoning the North. I mean, what on earth could be worse than the United Kingdom splitting over Brexit? If that happens in a different matter, it would be uh, in a different time, that's all different. So are you with Victoria that the time has now come for UK unilateral action here? Some people would say that Absolutely. the risk here is <coughs> it then sort of unravels the whole Brexit uh, exit withdrawal agreement. We get a trade war, God knows what else. But do you think the UK should now just fix it and, you know, to hell with it with what the EU thinks? We've I'm, just actually, got to fix it I'm actually concerned that Liz Truss has not gone far enough rather than anything else. I think that... We're at a situation where this has been a fudge by the UK government, no, not blaming anyone else, who have seen the writing on the wall in relation to the EU and their, in, their refusal to accept um, the, effectively Brexit for Northern Ireland. And I would have been with Lord Frost, who I, I just heard him make a speech in the House of Lords, which was excellent and two point. I think that they need to unilaterally do something now. And the reason why the DUP have been quite hard line on this is apart from anything else, they've just said, we're not listening to you anymore. We need to see action. And they've got a point, you know, because mm -hmm. every time, any, I mean, I remember Michael Gove, you know, and everybody else saying, oh, it's all right, the, the uh, Internal Markets Bill will deal with this. There was an opportunity then, and I made, it was one of the first speeches I made in the Lords. And then, literally, two days later, Michael Gove said, oh, it's all right, we don't need it now. Mm -hmm. We talk about being marched up the hill and down again. So I think it's very important yeah. that we act now. And when you talk about a trade war, by the way, the EU threatens a trade war. Nobody else has threatened a trade war. A trade war's not inevitable. They don't have to have a trade war. But if they are going to say, we're going to have a trade war, so you're not allowed to act, I mean, just as an aside, on what world are we going to be in a situation where you're going to somebody, let somebody bully you like this? This is kind of Putin-esque, if you want. You know, if you don't do what we tell you, we'll invade you and start a war. Well, a trade war might not be that kind of a war, but if they're going to threaten a trade war, we cannot be cowed by that. Very important. And by the way, just because just, I've got to go, just how it relates to the free speech issue, if you try and have this conversation in a kind of, you know, try to explain it, go through it calmly and all the rest of it, you will literally be told that you are going to be responsible for bringing violence back into Ireland, mm -hmm. destroying the Good Friday Agreement, you're guilty of nefarious reasons, yeah. you're doing it for all sorts of underhand things. And 
the Academy of Ideas is with a lot of young people, and we're running these things, you know, for for young people. This thing coming up on, on called Living Freedom, and all of these things are to do with saying it's more complicated. It's not black and white, yep. as you said. It's not binary. Let's talk about this in detail and disagree with me if you want, but don't accuse me or use labels to dismiss what I'm saying. Claire, I knew you would be able to sort the Irish uh, question and freedom of expression for us in just a little over half an hour. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Uh, please give your thanks to Claire Fox. Claire, thanks so much. Um, which way do I go? Uh, Lucy and Victoria, stay with us. Uh, shuffle up. I won't shuffle bite. Up. I won't bite. Um, uh, again, if you're enjoying the content, please make sure you hit the thumbs up, like, and leave a comment below. Express your own freedom of expression in the live chat or in the comments section below if you're watching this on Catch Up. Lucy, what's your take on this? Where, where were you yeah. on the on the Brexit? It, it sort of seemed obvious at the time that this would yeah. be a problem we'd have to return to yeah. later. But then I've got some sympathy that, I mean, people were kind of just bored into submission, right? The whole Brexit thing had been dragging on, let's sort of just get you know, it done, they, right? They were up against it when they were negotiating it, I would assume, to have to have accepted something like this. Um, and a lot of the times when people say, you know, you signed up to the protocol and now you're going back on it, you know, it doesn't mean you can't make things better. Um, and I think when it comes to this, you take a look at the EU, and it seems from where I'm standing, they are holding this for leverage, but they don't quite know what to do with it. Um, I think they don't understand how the Irish problem is, uh, the Irish border problem is. I don't think they understand the people in that area, whereas we've had a long history of having to, to manage and understand the situation ourselves. Um, so when it comes when it comes to sort of negotiating, talking about this, they often resort um, back to uh, computer says no uh, mentality, which is nothing can be done. But where is the sense of jeopardy for the EU? Quite frankly, there is none, and they don't quite understand where the sense of jeopardy is. Yeah. Um, my my idea and thinking behind this is that they're probably going to wait and wait and wait and prolong the situation as much as possible until they've got a plan, and then they'll act. You know, but they need to be told that you know this is a pressing situation. It means that people in Northern Ireland don't have the access to the tax breaks if the tax if we ever do get any tax breaks from yeah, the government. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath for that. It's not just a Northern Irish problem, is it? That's affecting the whole of the Western world. Yeah. And yeah. it means that you know lots of things are you know for ordinary average people in Northern Ireland are, are affected, and this undermines um, you know the Good Friday Agreement, which was the main goal of the protocol in the first place. It was not to undermine um, well, that's yeah. that's what it says on the face of it. Yes. Of course, the real main goal of it was to protect the single market whilst using the yeah. threat of violence in yeah. Northern Ireland as leverage to try and bounce the UK government into uh, into terms that were more favourable to yeah. the EU. Yeah, I mean the real risk to be here. cynical. Yeah, well, I, I mean to be <laughs> to be cynical. I mean the real risk here for the European Union is if this comes back at them with egg on their face. They don't want to look as if they're having, having neighbourly squabbles or, or indeed worse with people who they're supposed to be working collaboratively with. Can't speak, oh, long day. Um, but like, look at Switzerland, for example. Um, Switzerland walked away from their own negotiations with the European yeah. Union. Um, and likewise, you know, we've threatened to multiple times. Um, so, you know, this idea that they have to get on with them and for them to look uh, as people who cannot um, sure. deal with their neighbours is going to look bad. Um, before I bring in our last guest, because I know he, he wants to share some thoughts on, on, on this, um, 
Victoria, I guess it falls on me to try and put the EU's position, which they're sort of saying, right, well, you guys at the UK have decided to leave. There's a, there is a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, but it's mm -hmm. porous for, mm -hmm. for all sorts of uh, reasons related to peace. We want to be confident that the single market is, uh, lives up to whatever regulatory and standards we have imposed. Without a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, we're at the mercy of whatever British regulations are. That would be their case, wouldn't it? Do we need to make some undertaking to them that if they were to find, you know, truckloads of contaminated meat or bad electrical equipment, we would compensate them in some way? Because I'm not wholly sympathetic, unsympathetic to their position here, right? Yes, the, the integrity of the single market is an important principle and also not not just principle, it's, 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 it's sort of central to the uh, success of the single market is, is the trust uh, that um, the member states and their citizens can have that, that things are working and are being consistently applied throughout. However, the EU is very critical that at present the UK hasn't fully implemented the protocol. They did an audit uh, of our implementation so far and were, were horrified. Uh, it was not fit for purpose. We haven't invested in the systems suitably. We haven't got enough vets at the borders mm -hmm. and so on. And I think people say that we've around about 30% implementation. We've, we've implemented about 30% of the controls that the EU wants. However, there is no evidence whatsoever of any goods that are not authorised for the market in Ireland or the single market actually leaking across So it looks like it's a problem in theory rather than in practice? It's a problem in okay. theory but not in practice because actually uh, there is not that much trade north and south so if there were to be a sudden uptick in, uh, in cargo going from Northern Ireland uh, to uh, to Ireland, that would actually be quite obvious. Yep. And actually, Liz Truss was very keen to stress that the proposals that she wants to put in place would be very respectful of the single market, and we would undertake to, uh, you know, carry yep. out the checks okay. and take quite harsh sanctions against British businesses that were essentially smuggling goods across. Okay, well, to help us finally crack this problem and shuffle up, Victoria, but please give a very warm welcome to our last guest, political editor and presenter at GB News, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, good to see you. So, so I've been on your show a few times where you yeah. ask me impossible questions, boots on the other foot this time, my friend. Um, what, what the hell is going to happen here? I mean, the, the, the status quo is clearly can't hold, but when you start unpicking this, where, where, where do you think it leaves us? Indeed, it's really, really tricky. And, like, you know, I grew up on the border, mm -hmm. as in the Irish border, the one uh, that divides south from uh, north. And this is really, really tricky. Of course it is. You know what? There's essentially agreement, I think, across the board in Northern Ireland that the protocol as it is is not working. Um, we know that, frankly, like, say, Sainsbury's, for example, is not allowing goods into Northern Ireland now. It doesn't have any shops in the Irish Republic. What is the problem? And the single market, frankly, for the European Union, it's not gravity. It's not a physical thing where it's indisputable. The single market is a political mm. setup. Um, to say that the EU cannot be uh, understanding or it cannot be flexible in the single market is frankly ridiculous. It's a bit like when there were suggestions that we were smuggling vaccines in through the Irish border from Europe. I mean, the idea that you would smuggle goods into Europe via Northern Ireland seems quite odd given the fact it's an island. However, Northern Ireland is also a unique place. And I think the concern about the politics of this is around this idea of consent, if you like. 
And obviously, Eunice have made a very good case to say that there was no consent uh, to what's happened uh, with uh, the Irish border and in the Irish Sea, and that they frankly don't support it, even though a majority probably of MLAs do support the protocol in some form or another. But then, and this is why it's tricky, because nationalists would turn around and say, well, there was no consent for the protocol in the first place either, or indeed potentially for Brexit. If you're going to get down to democracy in Northern Ireland doesn't operate on 52-48, it operates on agreement from both sides, and that's clearly not been the case with Brexit, and that's why there's real frustrations. And the British government are in a bind about this, but frankly, it's a bind that they made for themselves, but one I think they did to get Brexit over the line was the only way it was going to work. I've got it cracked. We just get the Republic of Ireland to rejoin the United Kingdom. I'm told that probably won't fly. Yeah, I think, but, yeah. I think less than flyers in it, it, it uh, might start another skirmish. <laughs> yeah. like. um, but that, I mean, that, that, that's like, hist- I mean, just in pure economic terms, I mean, I'm sort of setting aside the extremely complex history of Ireland. But of course, you know, we, we joined the European Economic Community together. Yeah. Um, you know, we, so this is the first time we really hadn't been in a single market with the Republic. And that's just, I mean, that's just going to be an on-running problem, isn't it? it, it of course it is, and it is uh, one of these things where trade, obviously, with the UK for Ireland has slumped, and, that, and that's, that's hit people uh, down south quite a lot, and they are opening uh, new uh, trade routes to try and uh, make up uh, for that. But it also, you know, it makes, and I was listening to what Claire had to say earlier on, I mean, I'm someone who thinks Irish reunification is a very, very, very long way down the line, simply because it is so damn complex. If you think the protocol is complex, wait until you stock into mm. the nitty-gritty of how reunification, not independence, reunification uh, works. And, and, and in many ways, of, of course, Brexit makes that more difficult mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. just as it makes Scottish independence more difficult. Lucy, do you think there will be unilateral, you know, firm unilateral action here? We'll get it cracked just by sheer force of will from the British government? I don't know. I mean, they've, they've put a few um, suggestions out there like trusted trader schemes and stuff like that um, fast lanes slow lanes that sort of thing um, but it's a liberalization of the situation what the government wants to do is to liberalize the border and of course we can always expect the EU to want to make more bureaucracy mm-hmm. uh, their solutions are of course more um, certifications for food that's going to restaurants and to supermarkets mm-hmm. and that just causes more bureaucracy and as we've seen from the issues that they're currently having bureaucracy is the problem. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we, we, we've got it licked. We've solved freedom of speech. We've pretty much solved the Irish question. We've got about 15 minutes or so left to solve another uh, minor niggle of a problem that's afflicting the United Kingdom at the moment. The, the cost of living crisis. So we're seeing inflation at its highest rate for four uh, decades. Uh, calling this session bankrupt. Uh, has the Bank of England really done its job? An independent Bank of England was supposed to use interest rates to tackle inflation, to keep inflation between 2 to 3%. But uh, has not really done so, to put it uh, mildly. We've printed a ton of, ton of money. Uh, money supplies effectively doubled since uh, 2007. And now the cost of living pinch is happening. Sure, a lot of it associated with energy, but we're clearly in a situation in which most people are going to feel poorer in a year's time than they are today, because they will actually be poorer. It won't just be that they feel it and think it. Um, Victoria, this is quite, uh, this really is quite a severe uh, difficulty and a problem at the moment, isn't it, Pete? I mean, I, you know, Ronald Reagan was always saying the best way that you, any government wins an election, or he was re-elected president, do you feel richer than you were four years ago when you elected me? Well, uh, the answer to the Conservative government is going to be an emphatic no for almost everybody, isn't it? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I, I really don't see 
things improving on that front for quite some time uh, to come, which is a, going to be a real problem for the government coming into the next election. And it is, it's a combination of um, inflationary pressures from uh, loose monetary policy, COVID stimulus, shutting down the economy whilst continuing to pump money into it, and then the uh, the pressures on energy bills, on housing, uh, you know, everything coming together. And the governor of the Bank of England is just throwing his hands in the air and saying, oh, well, global pressures, it's the war in Ukraine, what could, what could I have done? But actually, you know, when you look at other countries, um, Switzerland has managed to keep uh, inflation under control. Japan is, is, has very low inflation, and I'm not suggesting you know we are necessarily able to, to replicate Japan or, um, or Switzerland, sadly, unfortunately. But I just I, I think it's, um, it's a problem actually with central bank independence that uh, the governor of the Bank of England can wash his hands of it and say, well, it's global, mm -hmm. global forces. The Chancellor of the Exchequer can say, well, it's nothing to do with me, it's central bank independence, yep, yep. I can't tell them what to do. Uh, and meanwhile, no one is actually taking responsibility. So everybody gets poorer. For the monetary policy decisions over the past several years. Darren, this is, you know, a big topic. I'm a, an avid watcher of GB News, and this is a very big topic for all of your programmes be, on GB. Be, it is the be, issue at the moment. Beat the isn't squeeze. It? Oh, of course it is, because frankly, it is hitting people right now. And frankly, you know what? The government doesn't have an answer. I'm going to be sympathetic to the government here. It is in a complete and utter bind. I mean, frankly, you know, there are a lot of people, and we saw this at PMQs today, who are struggling right now, who need help right now. And we're not talking about people who, you know, who spend their life struggling. We're talking about ordinary folk who do get by... Uh, In normal pre, times, yeah. yeah. pretty decent standard of living. And things are only going to get worse. What does the government do about this, though? And we saw this, again, from Prime Minister's question time today. Frankly, Boris Johnson doesn't quite know what mm -hmm, to do. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, clearly, or the Treasury, I should say, doesn't want to just pump lots more money into the economy and uh, clearly, understandably, make things a hell of a lot worse and prolong this inflation crisis. But at the same time, there's a political calculation here and a reality that the government has to do something, or at least be seen to do something, have targeted action at those that are at the low end of the income scale. How you do that, a windfall tax, cut taxes generally, it's not easy, no one has seen as easy, but I do think that, you know, the government, and Boris Johnson felt really under pressure today about the procrastination point, the dithering point, the bluster of not having an answer. And, you know, even his greatest fans would say the Prime Minister is not there with what to do on this. Yeah, but what, I mean, the, uh, you know, maybe you can feed this back in, in GB News, Darren, because the issue to me, like, I totally get why there's a focus on energy bills at the moment, mm. serious and going up substantially, and I think actually are accounting for a, a good chunk of the inflation is energy bills. But if you were just to take a pie chart of an average family household and look at their cost of living, by our calculations, let's take an almost exact average family income, household income of £30,000 per annum, you're probably paying, depends on your lifestyle and circumstances, but you're probably paying about £12,000 in tax, one way or another, income tax, VAT, uh, what have you, alcohol tax, all of the rest. I mean, that dwarfs the energy bill cost of living. So once you're taxing people to the max, and then rental prices and property prices in the UK are absolutely colossal. I know it's commonly said in London, 50% of your, um, of your uh, post-tax pay might go on rent. Well, once you pay that amount of tax and that amount in rent, hardly surprising, it's difficult to get food on the table and, and heat and light afterwards. So why, what, what's your reasoning as to why the Conservatives haven't said, well, we're going to tackle the cost of living. The biggest cost of living is tax. We're going to lower it. In fact, they've put it up. 
Indeed, and, um, so it's, it's quite extraordinary listening to um, the Prime Minister today talking about uh, Labour having put up taxes. I mean, frankly, this government, and we all know this, has got the highest burden of taxation for uh, 70 years. <clears throat> I think ultimately, though, and this is where the government have to be a bit more honest with people, is that, you know, whether it is giving a little bit more leeway on tax or not, but in the end, there's going to be pain. There's going to be economic pain. The only way to bring down inflation is with some economic pain. Mm -hmm. And I think they need to prepare the ground a hell of a lot more for voters about the fact that interest rates are going to go up and probably more substantially, um, that we are potentially looking at a recession uh, as well before the end of this year's out. We don't know what impact that might have on the jobs uh, market. Yeah. But, uh, you know, why are they not doing more on tax? There is, I think, Mark, and, you know, you, you observe these things as well. There's just a sense that it's like Rishi's weird announcement about pronouncing that tax cut next year. Like, it just seems very focused on the next election rather than what might yeah, work yeah. now. And I just don't think that's sustainable. I just, what I'm trying to say is, government at the moment has an answer. Not having an answer is not sustainable, and they are going to have to do something. Yeah. Lucy, what's your take on this? Uh, Friedrich Hayek, the great economist, is sort of the, the philosophical guru of the IA, really. Yes. His thinking led to the IA being established, said that taming inflation is like trying to catch a tiger by the tail. You know, once it's out of the cage, it's almost too late. You could look back to policy measures you could have taken three or four years ago. We can argue, should the Bank of England have put up interest rates, you know, earlier? But the longer you leave it, the more painful it is to treat it. Possibly even impossible to treat yeah, it, as the I Prime Minister's performance at PMQs today perhaps yeah. showed. It's um, at a 40-year high, and it's only going to get worse before it gets better. However, um, reading around and, and seeing what Jared Lyons has written recently in Con Home, he says that the focus shouldn't really be on, um, of course, inflation is an immediate and a, a, a sort of a short term in respective of sort of, you know, your longer term horizon of economic growth. And he says we should be putting more focus on economic growth over a long period of time. What does that mean? Um, Rishi Sunak knew um, that this would be an issue and he was um, probably quite concerned at the level of investment going into businesses um, to ensure that there was a level of economic growth over a long period of time. Um, so what he did back in the day was that, um, if you remember, uh, the super deduction tax, uh, which encouraged businesses to take some of their profits and plug it back into their, um, their businesses um, to make sure that there was a, a level of innovation and economic growth for the UK. Um, a few taxes that have been mentioned, um, you know, threaten the ability to do that. Um, the ability to um, plug even more mm -hmm. um, profits mm -hmm. back into developing and innovating. And I think that's really what the focus should be on. Do we sort of have a short-termist approach to this situation um, and elongate the pain? Or do we sort of look at this in a broader sense and think, can we shorten ourselves right now and start looking at how we can generate uh, a momentum behind economic growth yeah, yeah. and then reap the rewards afterwards? And that's where I stand. I think um, Lord Frost also had a similar opinion. But to Darren's point, I mean, in, in political terms, I mean, economics think tanks like ourselves will sort of say, you know, here's a supply side reform plan for, you know, much higher economic growth over the course of the next 40 years. Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to think that's a worthy contribution to debate, yeah. but 
the Prime Minister wants to do something in the next 40 minutes. Yeah, right? it's, I mean, well, there's a... There's a I mean, he, keeps, he's saying, he keeps saying, I'm going to have an announcement in a couple of days' time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Weeks I mean, go there's by. There's a general election coming down the line, so if, if I was in a political position, I'd want something short and sweet to sell. And that's probably what um, they'll be looking for, short-term answers that can get them on the front foot. Victoria, you mentioned earlier about the independence of the, uh, of the bank. Has that come into disrepute? It seems to me it emphatically has. Uh, the, when the bank was set up, it's very clear it's got one club in its golf set, interest rates, one ambition, keep inflation under control. Uh, I mean, you can argue whether that's a sensible way to construct your banking system or not, but it's at least pretty clear. And they haven't used the one club in their golf set. They just keep writing to the, you know, you're supposed to keep inflation between 2 and 3%. You write a sort of humble letter to the Chancellor, don't you, if you're the Governor of Bank of England, you've missed that target. But, I mean, that's just on control C, control V at the moment, right? I mean, just the well, same letter every month for months and months and months. To some extent, they do have another tool in the toolkit, which is to simply stop quantitative easing sooner. Uh, that's a sort of obviously I'm looking back with you know with 2020 hindsight there, but the, 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 they have both a forward and a back, if you like, and they've only been using the forward, and maybe they could have taken the foot off the pedal on the uh, on the money printing rather sooner than they did before they had to now, or before they are now in the position of having to apply the brakes. But I think in terms of central bank independence, I was just discussing this with, with, uh, with my boss, James Forder, today, who's been vindicated on this because he's been, he has said for a long time, the, ho the only reason for central bank independence is to give credibility to monetary policy uh, and the markets will be reassured mm -hmm. by the fact that there's essentially an independent expert at the helm and that gives credibility to, to commitments around controlling... Which early doors seem to happen, right? When, well, when Blair won and, and Brown announced it. I mean... I mean yes, but that's when times, times were good and it was actually quite easy to do that. As soon as it came under pressure, I think it's fair to say that the, the credibility argument seems to have uh, been lost. Uh, Lucy, do you think there's just going to be lots of finger-pointing here? You know, the yeah. Governor of Bank of England is going to point I mean, at The Putin Governor of the Bank of England is already pointing at ordinary people saying to, you know, businesses don't raise wages, don't ask for a pay rise, but it's inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable. You can't blame people yeah. for inflation. <laughs> yes. I, mean, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure that um, and Andrew might uh, get a pay rise at some point in the near future, maybe. Who knows? Um, it could be something I could suspect would happen, knowing how these things go. Um, but look... Um, um, ordinary people, you've had you've had this, um, you know, there's less, there's more jobs available. Um, there's not enough people taking them up, so there's a surplus of jobs out there. Um, so obviously, companies are going to have to attract people by pushing up wages, yeah. and then the cost of living crisis as well. On top of that, people will ask naturally for more money. So he's got to accept that that is going to happen. And if that's going to happen, what's your plan? Yeah, yeah. Darren, I'm, I'm running an economics think tank, but I'm not a forecaster. But I'm, I'm willing to put out a little bit of... Things could end up far worse than we presently see at the moment. The, the kind of, oh, inflation's going to, you know, top out at 9% and then it will start falling back. Maybe, as I say, I'm not a forecaster. But it seems to me there is a, a possible future in which we get up to 15% inflation. I don't know, 20% for all the reasons Lucy said. Pay will go up, everybody's going to demand more, and it's this, again, yeah, we, catch the tiger by the tail, nearly impossible. We, yeah, we end up fueling some domestic inflation. Also really interesting today, what's one of the main drivers? for food price inflation is clearly been the war in Ukraine. Uh, Russia and Ukraine, two of the largest wheat producers in the world. Today, 
or yesterday, I think, India, because it's got a ridiculous heat wave at the moment, it's got a ban wheat exports. Right. You know, you, we, we, there, are, there are things that are unforeseen that could very easily uh, feed into this. And um, to, to kind of bring my more kind of political hat to all of this, though, it, it's really interesting the kind of tensions that you see between the Treasury, Rishi Sunak, who frankly is making the argument of we shouldn't fuel all of this inflation. We need a bit of economic pain uh, to dampen this down. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And you've got Boris Johnson, who you know what, unbelievably, love spending money mm. and just want to get through the next day and yeah. will just agree to whatever. And at the moment, that's where we are definitely on the windfall tax on energy companies. You know, the Treasury thinking that's going to set a bad precedent. Um, it also obviously falls into a Labour trap. But for Boris, frankly, he needs an answer, and that seems a very obvious answer. And, you know, he's a populist to many degrees. It's very popular with the public. Mm. Unbelievably, four out of every five people look at Shell and BP making billions and billions and billions of pounds worth of profit and they go uh hold on a moment but why are they making this money which they didn't think they're going to make and our bills are going up it doesn't make sense so i think in the end it's more likely than not that, that boris will probably row in behind it simply because politically even though economics it's a different argument. Politically, it's probably the one easy answer. Um, Lucy, do you think that will happen? I mean, I think most of my colleagues here at the IA are opposed to windfall taxes. Yeah, also, I mean, well, I mean, corporation <laughs> tax is sort of a windfall tax, right? We do tax yeah. profits of companies, and if your profits go up, you obviously pay more corporation tax. But I get very, very nervous. I can hear what Darren's saying on the short-term, yeah. attractive, popular, political fix. Yeah. But once you start getting politicians. Yeah deciding that company's unpopular, so their profits are going to be taxed more than this company, which is a bit more popular. Or do you start subsidising? I mean, it wasn't that long ago when the barrel was worth more than the oil in it. We didn't then <laughs> yes. subsidise the, the energy companies. It would be a pretty dangerous step, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, everyone can agree that there has to be an intervention at this point, I think. You can't leave this to get worse and worse. Whether that's through a windfall tax or whether it's not, is an outstanding question, I suppose, for those um, who are in a significant position of power to uh, reduce, um, you know, pain on, on, on families across the board. But, like I said before, you know, is this something that is is applicable to larger companies who could then reinvest into their companies? It, it's one of those things where there are short-term gains but long-term pains when you're doing this type of thing. And I think it's going to be an incredibly difficult conversation between the Treasury and Boris to work out exactly which direction they want to go. It's true, it is incredibly popular with the general public who have had to sacrifice the last two years of their lives to COVID-19 and think they've already made enough sacrifices. So with Andrew uh, Bailey saying, you've got to have another sacrifice, take yeah. one for the team, are they then going to take another uh, for the team for the larger and longer term economy? Probably not. Um, so I would say that as a politician, you'd probably you'd probably look at this with a, a bit of some greedy eyes. Okay, I, I, Andrew can take a second job. <laughs> yes, yeah. second job, Andrew. Um, I want to finish by putting to each of you just the theory I've got. And you know, I'm I'm an old man now. I just recently turned fifty. And I was sort of yearning again for the 1990s. I'm not sure that's the definition of <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Everyone was silent. Pretty no much. one said, no, what are you talking about? And, uh, I was sort of reflecting over my 50 years on the planet and started yearning for the 1990s. 
in which, as far as I recollect, basically nothing happened. We all just got richer. It was a successful Peter time for the economy. Peter Andre happened. There were some crises. Cool Britannia. Um, where is it at the moment? And Darren, do you feel this in the in the in the news media? I'm not blaming the media for it. It might be a reflection of what's actually happening. But we seem to now be in permanent crisis, right? So, uh, you know, Brexit, oh my God, that's going to be a crisis. And then COVID, so we're going to spend money to deal with that. And now the cost of living crisis, as if there is never a year when the sun is shining at which you might fix the roof. There's only years of different types of rain. I, I finished my postgraduate journalism the year that Lehman Brothers collapsed and the financial crisis hit. And ever since then, it feels that we've never been on a proper tiller, yeah. really. Normality has um, not returned. Yeah, we've had a kind of recovery and then, as you say, COVID hits, yeah. we've got a war on um, and people keep on banging on our monkeypox, um, uh, which is slightly disconcerting. Um, but yes, you're right, as in, yes, it does feel like we're in a kind of perennial crisis. All I would say, though, um, and it is, it is disconcerting and there are a lot of people suffering, is I know, I don't know, you'll not remember this, no, very few people, thankfully, but it's not the 1970s. I don't think we've quite hit the 1970s. Do you really think? I, th I think we're really? heading there at speed okay. in okay. our targets. Well, we are returning not. back to the yeah. 1970s at speed. Because I mean, that was, I mean, that was like genuinely bad. Um, and 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 you know, our politics also has been in massive flux since the financial crisis, and there is no sign of that settling down either. Victoria, do you think we're in just you know permanent crises of one form or another? There's never going to be a normal year again. It's going to be COVID or cost of living or Trump or Brexit or monkeypox. God knows what else. I'll, I'll slightly push back on your um, roast-tinted view of the 90s. Don't forget the 90s was when uh, Tony Blair and New Labour first started setting about uh, vandalising our constitution and introducing... Uh, bringing in a big old topic right towards the end, Victoria. <laughs> we, did have, we did have Mr Blobby on the TV, though. In the yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some big upsides to offset so, it. Yeah, yeah so in, perhaps in some ways that was when, when, when the rot set in and it was sound economic policy was thrown out the window well, yeah. in, in, in those times. But I, I, I'm not particularly optimistic about positive things uh, happening in our economy in, in the coming months and years, I must admit. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to stay with my rose-tinted glasses. What do you think, Lucy? I was asking, I won't name them, but a, a Conservative Member of Parliament who's been in, uh, in Parliament, I think, I think, 1992. And he was at a dinner in which he was asked, well, you're a long-serving you know, MP now. Who has been your favourite right-wing Prime Minister in that time? And without hesitation, he said, Tony Blair. Which <laughs> um, sort of tells you rather a lot, doesn't it? I mean, Lucy, are we, let me finish with you. We're just in permanent crisis all the time now. No, when is normality going to come back? I think there is normality. It's just the people who are reporting don't see it because they're too busy. It's all Darren's fault. Sorry. <laughs> too busy reporting things that are abnormal to get the headlines. But I think there is a silver lining here. And the more there are top-line conversations about big, flashy uh, news articles, behind the scenes, people in pubs, families are having discussions on the detail. They're making sure that the important things are discussed and they're making everyday decisions from those discussions. If only I think those people in charge could learn from them. So there is a silver lining. Uh, let's finish on a silver lining. Uh, thanks Darren, Victoria and Lucy for being my guests this evening. My thanks too to Claire Fox, our earlier guest. Thanks for everybody watching at home. If you've enjoyed the show, remind you again, hit that thumbs up button, uh, the subscribe uh, banner and the notification bell.
well. If in these troubled times you've got a few pennies spare and can help us keep the lights on, which is becoming more and more expensive, please do consider becoming an IA online patron. Details are in the show notes below. Huge thanks to our top tier IA online patrons, Donald Blaney, James Burns, Jordan Grover, Mark Edwards, Philip Ozuf, Richard Leader, Robert Appleby and Timothy Worrell, and to many others at the, the lower tiers as well. I've got a confession now. My treat to myself, for having recently turned 50, is I'm going to take a very long summer holiday beginning next week. But fear not, the show will go on live without Littlewood. We'll be back on air with guest presenters uh, every other Wednesday uh, for much of the summer. Uh, so I hope you've enjoyed the show. Stay safe, stay free. Over and out.